A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Listen for the word of God. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. So today I'm going to start a summer series, which in many ways has already started, because Patrick and Whitney have preached from the book of Acts several times in the last few weeks. The series will be drawn from the Acts of the Apostles, or as we more commonly know it, simply as the Book of Acts. I'll be highlighting events and characters in the book of the early story of the church in the sermons that I preach between now and Labor Day. And I want to give you a very simple introduction to Acts. If you hold up the Bible, about two-thirds of it is what we call the Old Testament which is essentially the story of God's relationship with the people of Israel from the call of Abraham and Sarah through the end of the Old Testament where they begin to yearn for a Messiah. It covers roughly 2,000 years in history. The New Testament is much shorter. In the first part, called the Gospels, we have the stories of Jesus' birth, life, 
death and resurrection. He is the one that we Christians recognize as the Messiah who was hoped for in the Old Testament. The second and larger part of the New Testament is the story about all this hope and idealism and energy and beauty of Jesus' life and teachings gets translated on the ground in the real world after Jesus' death and resurrection. That translation occurs not only in the world of Judaism into which Christianity was born, but it occurs throughout the entire Greco-Roman world led primarily by a person named Paul. The book known as the Acts of the Apostles is an early account of the people committed to Jesus as the Messiah trying to live out their faith and develop it in the world around them. It is a task that remains before us, which is what makes this book worthwhile for a series of summer sermons. I hope when you're not traveling, either with one of my friends or on your own, I hope you will join us. And as always, always, I thank you for being here. Let us pray. Oh, teach me, Lord, that I may teach the precious things thou dost impart, and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one, amen. When I studied history in high school and then as an undergraduate in college, I remember learning about the issue of continuity and change. Is the history of a nation marked by continuity or has sudden far-reaching change been its characteristic? When change occurs in history, as it does in most societies and nations, does it grow out of or rather break with the past. Likewise, for an individual, can changes that we make or go through, spiritual, psychological, moral, vocational, be traced to who we have always been, or do they represent breaks with the past, new beginnings, a new identity? A new self. When we enter the world of Protestant religion, we often assume that major times we experience the presence of God or make a deeper commitment in our faith involve a break with the past, more change than continuity. You must be born again, we hear Jesus say in the Gospel of John. And for us today, as for his hearers then, we know that physical rebirth is an impossibility. Thus, when applied to religious experience, this metaphor must represent a degree of change beyond our comprehension. Likewise, one of the biblical phrases that comes into our secular language is the phrase, a Damascus Road experience. To say that a person has a Damascus Road experience is to say that the person has experienced a complete turnaround, a change of heart or mind, a whole new direction or a decision on a certain matter 
that often comes through a dramatic, sudden revelation. As you likely know, this is what happens to the Apostle Paul. Narrated three times by Luke in the book of Acts, and once by Paul himself in a letter that he writes to the Galatians. In Luke's narration, the first of which Lauren just read, Paul, who at the time is known as Saul, is traveling on the road to Damascus. He is breathing threats and murder against any men and women who belong to the way, a name that was given to the early Christian movement. And he is seeking to round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem for discipline and sometimes even death at the hands of the religious authorities who are the objects of these reformers' efforts. Suddenly a light from heaven flashes around Saul. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice calling to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asks, who are you, Lord? The voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and there you will be told what to do. For three days, Saul remains blinded and takes no food. But then a man named Ananias comes to him out of the blue and says, The Lord Jesus has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. His sight returns. Ananias baptizes him, marking the change that he is undergoing. Saul then takes food, and then he begins to preach in the synagogues as an initial step in a larger commission on which God is sending him to bring the name of Christ from its origins in Judaism to Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. As is the case with many who have a Damascus Road experience, Saul's change of heart and mind and focus is so far-reaching that his name is eventually changed from Saul to Paul. It is as if he has come from the womb a second time. Now, as one whose changes in life have been gradual rather than sudden, quiet rather than dramatic, I have always been interested in this story because Paul's experience is so different from my own. As a pastor, I have been keenly aware of how true to life this story is for many people who are members of the churches I have served. And at the same time, I have been aware of how out of character it is for many others. So I have always seen this passage as instructive. What attracts me about it these days is that as dramatic as Paul's experience is and as radical and complete as his turnaround is, I realize that many aspects of Paul's experience, while dramatic to be sure, 
contain elements that people who had gone before him across the 2,000 years of Jewish history which preceded him had experienced as well. In other words, much of what Paul goes through on the road to Damascus has happened to others about whom he would have known and whom he would have revered. Thus, there is continuity behind the change that Paul experiences. Just a sampling of precursors of Paul's experience. When Paul falls to the ground in the presence of light, it is reminiscent of the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, both of whom fall to the ground when they are approached and called by God. When Paul is addressed twice, Saul, Saul, it is reminiscent of God or God's representatives calling Abraham, Abraham, as he walks Isaac to the binding of Isaac. Of God calling Jacob, Jacob, on the banks of the Tigris. Of God calling Moses, Moses, at the burning bush. And of God calling Samuel, Samuel, in the temple. When Paul is commanded to get up and enter the city where he will be told what to do, it calls to his memory and ours the commission to Abraham to go from his father's house to a land that God will show him when he gets there. As well as the commission to the comical prophet Jonah to get up from the land on which the great fish has deposited him and go to Nineveh that great city to which Jonah has done everything possible to avoid. Finally, when Paul is temporarily blinded, it reminds us of the disciples who walk on the road to Emmaus with the risen Christ, whose eyes are kept from recognizing him until he breaks bread in their presence. While the direction of Paul's life and the focus of his deeply held service to God takes a 180 degree turn on the road to Damascus, it is rooted in the faith and life, the language and literature, the vocabulary and vernacular that has shaped and formed him in his upbringing in Judaism. There was continuity out of which his change emerged. This is why what we do and say, learn and sing in worship and service and Christian formation and life together in the church is so vitally important. It provides us with the language and vernacular that shapes us and prepares the way for whatever changes God has in mind for us. Think about the way the worship life of the church, its music and words, have shaped you. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else. Save that thou art. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require but that you do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lift every voice and sing. Go with them, Lord, and guide their way through this and every coming day that in your spirit, strong and true, their lives may be their gift to you. There is continuity at the heart of change. I started this sermon that by saying as a high school and undergraduate, I studied history. I did so and I loved it. When you go to a medium-sized party school, state university like the University of Arkansas, and you walk into the history department and say you love history, the professors go wild. (laughs) But from seminary forward, I became captivated by biblical studies. And then from the early 1990s onward, I went on a literature tear. I began reading popular novels like those of John Grisham, and then I moved to more highbrow contemporary literature I got onto short stories all the way back to Chekhov and then started studying and writing contemporary poetry. But moving to our city, about the time the unity of 9-11 wore off and our politics became as fractious and divisive as it has been, I felt the need to throw myself back into history. And thus, imbibing words that are sometimes less eloquent but no less important, my reading of late has been focused on the history of our nation. Why? Because I want to understand who we are. Why? Because I want to know my place as a Christian, as a citizen, as a pastor serving in our city, in our time. Why? Because I want to know how much of what we are experiencing and expressing in the present is rooted in the past. And how much of it is authentically new for weal or for woe. Why? Because I want to know what to do in light of present blessings present curses that are upon us. My friends, when we have something that jars us into a different place as individuals or as a church, a family, a nation, at least if we know what of our present change grows out of our past and what does not, we might deal more wisely with the choices and challenges that we have in the present. 
in dealing with choices and challenges, whether as individuals or as societies, is a big part of what it means to be a person of faith, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As the people of Israel stood poised to enter the land God had promised them over 400 years before, Moses said to them, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, he said, therefore, choose life. We are all of us more able and likely to choose life, to choose the things that lead to life, to choose the things that affirm life and its flourishing. If we know from whence we have come, where we have been, and where God is leading us, whether it's through a blinding light that Saul, Paul experienced, or through a quiet and gentle nudge.